Welcome to the Real Rescue Podcast, brought to you by Vertical Helicast. This episode of the Real Rescue is being sponsored by Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Coming up next on this episode of The Real Rescue. We are joined by a guy who gives us an incredible history lesson on a lady who joined the French Army in 1947. She started out as a doctor, turned into be a neurosurgeon, which then turned into pioneer rescue pilot. He wrote an entire book on her and brings a little piece of it here. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. Charles Evans and his story about Valerie Andre. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Today, I've got a guy with us. Who, this is actually going to be interesting. This is the first time I've ever done this here. Um, so it's it's going to be fun. So let me first introduce Charles Evans. Hello, Charles. How are you today? Ah, good morning, Jason. I know we're kind of uh, separated by about 10 hours, aren't we? Yes, we are. So it's okay. It's well, more, good evening to you. For you. Yeah, mid morning to you. Did you have a good cup of coffee this morning? Oh, yeah. I'm mostly awake now. All right. Mostly. <laughs> I love it's t- it. I it's love after it. 10 o'clock out here. I'm in Nevada. Oh, perfect. See, it's beautiful. Beautiful. So the sun is up and shining. For me, the sun has gone down. It's all good. It's all good. I all like right. it. It's amazing what technology Enjoy. does these days. It's awesome. Absolutely. <laughs> and here we are. Here we are. Well, this is great because you came on or you're come, you've come on to share a story of someone else so you wrote a book and the name of the book is let me bring it over here real quick it's helicopter heroine valerie andre surgeon pioneer rescue pilot and her courage under fire your book that's awesome yes yes this woman did it all in an age where uh women weren't encouraged to do things like she did become a doctor a surgeon um uh, rescue uh uh parachute rescue um uh, uh medic, medical tech and eventually a rescue medical pilot a helicopter pilot it was unheard of in her time frame she was born in 1922 she's still with us today too she turned 101 back in april oh my gosh and you were able to do not only we we get to do like a full book report on her you <laughs> did all the interview, you wrote the book, and now you get to give us a report. I'm so excited. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's that's exactly right, Jason. I mean, I've done a a book report that took me about close to 20 years to finish. So if there was any due date on this thing, I've already blown it. (laughs) (laughs) You know what? 
I the the due date was today. I, I think we're good. I think we're good. All right, <laughs> I'm good with that. So but no, you, this woman's been, yeah. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. ahead. No, please go ahead. Well, I was going to say this woman's just a remarkable lady that I had the uh, unique opportunity and and privilege to meet over the last 20 years. Uh, I learned of her story close to 30 years ago. Um, I was a curator of. Uh, uh, the Hiller Aircraft Museum in uh, Northern California near San Francisco. And I worked for a man named Stanley Hiller, who was one of the founding uh, uh, pioneers of helicopter aviation in the United States, along with Frank Piasecki, uh, the people at Bell Aircraft, and uh, uh, Charles Kamen as well. Nice. Very nice. So he was and the founding four that were successful back in the 1940s into the 50s and 60s and onward. Oh, very cool. And I, so how did, all right, let me back up real quick, because the lady that you wrote the book about, um, Valerie Andre, she was born in France. And let's see, right here, surgeon, pioneer rescue pilot. She flew 128 rescue missions from 1951 to 1953, primarily in Vietnam. And you're going to get into a bunch of this. She oh, yeah. Saved in the world's most dangerous combat zones you could imagine back in the 1950s. She was always open to sniper attack, uh, mortar attack, anytime she was making a landing to pick up a wounded soldier. And saved Just the lives incredible. of a hunt. Yeah, and 168 wounded French soldiers were saved because of her. Oh, yeah. Incredible. I mean, that was the amazing part of it all, sure. I mean, uh, you know, did it single-handedly. Once she was certified to fly solo missions, she did these operations by herself in a very, very flimsy, fragile, primitive helicopter. If you can, if anybody out there, your your uh, audience knows what the Hiller UH-12 360 is, it has absolutely no protection. It's a three-seater, three-passenger helicopter at best. But they put put side litters on these helicopters to carry pass uh, to carry wounded soldiers, and. Um, Oftentimes, even when they're operating in the tropics, they had very, very limited payload. They couldn't; they barely could take a pilot and two wounded soldiers back to where uh, to a hospital for uh, for treatment for these these wounded. So it was amazing that she survived this time period without, well, with being here today at 101. She's still with us, as I said. 101 years old. Oh my god! 101 years old. And it's amazing that she's with us here today and, and, and you know and she survived at any age because she could have been cut down back in the 1950s very easily wow unreal that's incredible incredible so my first question is going to be for you like one how did you get into writing and then caveat with that with what brought you to finding valerie andres ah excellent question uh, I've written another book. It was called The War of the Aeronauts. It was a book about how balloons were used during the American Civil War. And I wrote that about 20 years ago uh, for the same publisher. And uh, I thought at that time I actually had some credential to approach Valerie Andre. As I said, I was a curator of the Hiller Aircraft Museum uh, back in the uh, mid-90s. And, uh, and I was going to San Francisco State at the same time. I was a student at San Francisco State. I got a job working for Stanley Hiller as his curator and it was kind of an incredible experience for me at the time um this museum was in a in a really nondescript warehouse about a mile from where i lived and uh there was like 45 aircraft in inside this uh, warehouse some of his most a lot of his stuff related to stanley hiller a lot of his production helicopters it's experimental stuff and tons and tons of photos and the one photo that i focused in on on probably the first day i was there 
was this woman uh, in uh, uh, khaki overalls wearing a, a floppy safari hat standing in front of a hiller. And I immediately wanted to know who she was. I just thought I was just struck by this picture. And these pictures are in my book, the ones that fascinated me over 30 years ago now. But nice. um, I wanted to know who she was. And Stanley Hiller told me the story about who Valerie Andre was. I got the story from him first. Wow. So then from there, you how did you get in touch with her? Well, I had her address uh, through my connections with Hiller. And as I said, I wrote this book called War of the Aeronauts. And I thought I had enough credential by that time, you know, as a book author, that I could approach her with the idea of uh, writing this book. So about, I think it was 2003, actually, that I went to see her for the first time in France. I wrote to her. She wrote back to me and said, if you come to Paris, she lived right outside of Paris, uh, she'd be more than willing to meet me. And she did. Uh, and we hit it off quite well at the time. Uh, she always re referred to me as uh, old American, uh, the tall, the tall American, because I'm six foot three and she's only five foot one. She's a very petite oh lady. Gosh. <laughs> I love it. And that was her total rationale for becoming a rescue pilot. By the way, I mentioned these Heller helicopters had such limited payload capacity that she said, uh, you know, and she had to overcome a lot of prejudice. Don't think that this was an easy process for her at all. There was obstacles all along the way uh, for her at that time, and so. Uh, she said to the to her uh, you know superior officers, the ones who would finally make the decision to place her in uh, the role of a rescue pilot. She says, "I'm five foot one, uh, you know, I, and I weigh uh, roughly a hundred pounds, more or less. Uh, because I'm so small, and because I have these skills as a uh, as a doctor and a surgeon, I can both stabilize these patients, these wounded soldiers, and I can pot potentially take more than just two back to a uh, to a military hospital for treatment. So she had a, an entire argument, you know, set up that you know she was perfect for this for this job. Wow, unreal! And she was always crazy about aviation. So going when, back to when she was do, uh, from what age? She, uh, from 10 years old onward, she was always a giant fanatic about aviation. She had the opportunity when she was 10 years old to meet a female French aviator named Maurice Hiltz in 1932. When she was only 10 years old, she came, the, uh, uh, Valerie came from Strasbourg, France, on the border with Germany. And uh, she, uh, and uh, Maurice Hiltz came to the uh, aerodrome in uh, Strasbourg in 1932. And uh, there's a picture of her um, that shows her with a bouquet of flowers ready to, at age 10, to give to this famous woman. This, uh, Maurice Hills was well known for uh, long distance flights back then. She actually flew from Paris to Saigon the year previous, uh, setting a distance record at the time. Sa wow. you know, she went from Paris, France, to Saigon, Vietnam. And it was a major, wow. major achievement in aviation and for a woman at that time, too. And so Valerie Andre said, if this woman could do it, I can do it, too. And from that on, she set her sights on becoming a pilot. And, you know, she did, and she was fascinated with the sciences. And uh, she also set herself on, uh, on a course to become a doctor as well. That is incredible. Now, she started, uh, or she got, she came into World War II at a young age. Um, and you talk about that quite a bit, like how the World War oh, yeah. actually, World War II specifically affected her. Oh, tremendously. Uh, as I said, she she wanted to become a pilot. She was actually training just up in the, up to the months leading up to the uh, outbreak of World War II when the Germans invaded Poland in uh, September of 1939. Uh, in August, she was taking uh, flight lessons for the first time. 
and uh, was working toward getting her pilot's uh, license in fixed wing at the time, obviously. And um, she uh, said uh, at the time that she had to pay for her lessons. Uh, young men at the time were being tra trained for civil defense. And if they wanted to become pilots, you know, the French government, the French military would train them for free. Uh, in her case, she had to pay for her own lesson, so she did everything like tutor math students and tutor uh, different studies and sciences and uh, raise money that way in order to become, you know, to pay for her lessons. But all that came to an end September 1939. And even her ambitions to become a doctor almost ended, too, because she wanted to go to the University of Strasbourg, uh, her home city. But in 1940, when the Germans occupied France, and that would happen for the next four years up until 1944, uh the university shut down actually a lot of the faculty and a lot of the students were already going to the university of strasbourg fled to the center of the country they went to a place called clermont ferrand uh just south of paris and uh she eventually left too now that was a very dangerous and arduous journey for her because at the time in 1940 when the germans occupied occupied that part of france alsace lorraine People in that part of that uh, in that part of France were forbidden to leave under penalty of arrest and uh, and possibly deportation to uh, factory slave labor in Germany, that was, you know, to support their war effort. It was one step just above being sent to a concentration camp uh, to be sent to slave uh, to factory labor in Germany at the time. And so she was subject to arrest and possible deportation. So. She was very gutsy. Uh, her family didn't want her to leave, particularly her father said, you know, no way are you going to, you should leave. This is dangerous. And she ignored all that. She said, I'll take on the risk. I'll take, I'll assume the risk. And she did. Uh, she had a friend of hers that helped her get out and they made it eventually to Clermont-Ferrand. And she uh, started uh, taking uh, uh, her pre-med uh, courses there. But in 1942, there was a lot of resistance activity going on. Uh, with students at the uh, university and the Gestapo uh, uh, mounted a raid one day and rounded up uh, you know, several hundred people. Many of them were shipped, uh, the Jewish students were shipped to concentration camps. Um, a lot of the resistance people were uh, just summarily executed and she narrowly, narrowly escaped being arrested herself that day. Wow. Oh my gosh. That's incredible. And that's and so all, like from 17 that years on, old, too. She was well, young. by this time, I think in 1944, I think she was uh, roughly 21 or 22. I think she was 22 at this time. Oh, my gosh. Uh, no, this is 1942. She would have been around 20. 20. That's correct. She would have been 20 in 1942. <laughs> and uh, wow. uh, even her, it was so, it was, it was such a situation that she was uh, renting um, um, a room in a house that belonged to a newspaper editor. Uh, the newspaper editor wound up being executed because he was involved in resistance movement at the time. So she just merely, barely either, she either uh, narrowly missed being uh, arrested or at worst executed at that time. It just was, uh, it was a massive bloodbath, unfortunately, for the university at that time. It just uh, it was a massive, massive tragedy. But she had to live underground from that point on, always worried about being, always in fear of being arrested. And from that point on, she went to Paris and she completed her studies at the, uh, the Sorbonne, the University of Paris. But up until the liberation of Paris in August of 1944, she just lived in, uh, always with the possibility of being arrested and had to wow. just live underground. Oh my God. Just incredible. An incredible time. Yeah. Yeah, and the uh, the 
ferocity of her to move forward and to rise above that is just incredible. That's oh yeah, yeah. Wow. I mean, there was times I write in my book about a particular incident where she was uh, staying in a room and uh, the Gestapo had come into this uh, rooming house that she was staying at. And uh, and she could hear through the walls. They were questioning a, 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 a couple that was living next door to her and they were arrested. And she was worried that that was going to that they were coming for her next. I mean, that was just the the the, the fear of living at that in, in that time when you were under when that country, when France was under the, the occupation uh, of Germany at that time. And it was just a harsh, harsh thing to, to live with day in and day out. Unreal. Dang. You know, and, it was, but, it was uh, something else. Yeah. No, no, go please ahead. go ahead. No, 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 no. Well, no, I, I was going to say, I, I hope I'm not. Well, I was going to say that, though, when liberation came, it was amazing because she was there in 1944 when the Free French were the first to come into uh, Paris for the liberation. And uh, she was in at Notre Dame Saint-Michel at the, at the square there where Charles de Gaulle gave his famous speech about liberating Paris. You know, that, that was a, the key thing for the Free French, you know, and de Gaulle to come into France and to liberate, you know, the symbol of France is Paris. And uh, she was there when she got got to see, uh, and that was even, a, you know, under duress. I mean, there were snipers in some of the buildings around uh, Notre Dame Cathedral that were still active. You know, they were either, they were either uh, French who were allied themselves with the Germans or still some German pockets of, of, German, uh, of German Wehrmacht uh, that were still, present there that hadn't surrendered yet and, and were trying to take shots at de Gaulle and, and some of the people who had gathered that day to see uh, the liberation speech. So she saw that history as an eyewitness. I think that's amazing because that was a day that France had waited for for four years after, you know, four years of German occupation to, to yeah. you know, finally be, um, you know, set free. Wow. Wow. What a moment in time to be a part of. Unreal. Oh, yeah. And, and she was she was totally enamored with the French military. Uh, when, as I said, the free French soldiers who came in to liberate uh, Paris, she referred them as the incarnation of modern knights. She thought that they were the incarnation of modern knights, what she called them. And uh, she had a tremendous, tremendous admiration for the military uh, as a result of that. Unreal. That's awesome. So is, is that actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to segue forward a little bit. Did that is that part of the reason that she joined and flew for in Vietnam for the French Indochina War? Yeah, the French Indochina War. I'll get to that in a second, but that was okay. Oh, I, I'm, was, I'm skipping too fast. My bad, Charles. My bad. No, I don't no, want to. I don't want to skip anything. <laughs> no, no, no. It's absolutely fine. But the French Indochina War is very, very significant to U.S. history because. The Indochina War is what predated the American Vietnam War uh, in the late fifties to the uh, to the early to the mid seventies that the U.S. was involved in, roughly from fifty five on to nineteen seventy five, and um, it was a result of French colonialism. And I, I'll get back to that in a second. But I just wanted to say that um, Valerie, when she graduated from uh, the university in nineteen uh, from university nineteen forty seven, University of Paris. Uh, she was encouraged by her and her some of her uh, professors to volunteer for the French military and their mission in Vietnam at the time in Indochina, uh, and uh, be, because medical personnel were in, in short, short supply 
in Vietnam at that time with the French military. It just, it was an all volunteer army. It was not, there was conscription in France to join the military in the 1940s, but service in Vietnam, which I'll get into in a second, was totally voluntary. And so the, the soldiers who fought there, the medical personnel who volunteered to treat soldiers and uh, to treat the wounded, all were volunteer, it was an all volunteer army at that time. But getting back into why France was involved in Indochina and Vietnam at the time goes back to the 19th century, to the 1800s, when uh, France colonized that region of the world. Indochina refers to three countries, really. It refers to Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And uh, up until 1945, it was a French colony. And it remained a French colony, really, until 1955. But what happened was that uh, there was a nationalist movement. It was led by a man named Minh. This was for the Vietnamese. It was a Vietnamese nationalist movement led by Ho Chi Minh, who wanted to be free of French rule. And he had a very simple reasoning, too, because he saw what happened with uh, France in particular during World War II. It was occupied by Germany for four years, and it, in a sense, became a colony of Germany during those four years. And Ho Chi Minh uh, was a very acute, a very astute um, student of history and of current events. He listened to words like uh, that came from um, the American president, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who said uh, that... Uh, that cl the colonial system should end after World War II. He made a lot, many allusions to that during the Second World War, during you know, in speeches. You know, I, I sometimes characterize Germany as one of the most rabid colonizers in the world. It, it, it when it uh, started uh, the Second World War, it not only conquered these companies but it occupied them, uh, took out uh, natural resources, labor, factory work, it, all in support of Germany. So if you look at uh, World War II in a sense that Germany was this massive colonizer and it was defeated because of, uh, you know, probably an inherent evil involved with colonial systems, then Ho Chi Minh real, rationalized that uh, France was wrong to continue to colonize uh, Vietnam after the war. But France was not ready to let, let uh, Vietnam go. And it was for a very simple reason. Uh, France was broke, basically, after World War II. It was economically devastated. So they needed the income, the revenue stream that, that colonialism provided from raw materials, from labor, from um, you know anything manufactured in these countries in order to rebuild its own economy after World War II. So in a lot of sense, they could not let go of the colonial system at that time because they were just, like I said, economically devastated. So wow. the, these two ideas came into conflict. Uh, the Ho Chi Minh and his group that became known as the Viet Minh wanted independence for Vietnam. France did not want to let Vietnam become independent at that time. So they became, and uh, there were factions on both sides that were itching for a war every which way. And that was triggered in 1946. Uh, the war started in 46 in Haiphong Harbor when the, the French attacked the Viet Minh and uh, some, by some estimates killed maybe uh, as many as 10,000 people during that. Uh, yeah, it was a massive, massive. Wow. And, well, it was even more interesting than that because after the uh, Second World War, the uh, Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Minh uh, were in control of Vietnam for a short period of time. You have to go back a little bit further. When France fell in 1940, 
Japan came in and filled the vacuum uh, in uh, Vietnam. It occupied Vietnam as, a, as its own colony. Uh, and, and, and the French had to get it back after World War II, after the Japanese were, uh, uh, were um, conquered, after the Japanese surrendered. So the French was trying to reestablish re its control over Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh was trying to uh, establish, uh, you know, and to assert independence in Vietnam. So those two, I, those two ideas came into conflict by 1946, and the war was on, and it was brutal. Uh, there were many, many casualties on, casualties on both sides. That's why Valerie Andre was really encouraged to go to Vietnam to volunteer in the, the French uh, Health Services Corps. It was called Service de Santé, or Service de Santé, and she was commissioned as a captain in the French Army as part of the uh, um, Medical Corps. Wow. Was she flying at that time as well? Like, I, I know she was... No, she just no, no, not Okay. No, no, she didn't have a fixed wing license. She had uh, taken lessons actually uh, during her medical studies in France uh, as a glider pilot. Uh, so she had some experience by that time flying, but nothing but uh, motors yet, nothing, just gliders. And okay. uh, the helicopter was still a little bit off into the future. But uh, she did two things when she got to Vietnam. She uh, was assigned to a, a military hospital in Saigon at first. And uh, because of all the wounds, wounded soldiers coming in, especially with head trauma cases, she was trained in the uh, technique of neurosurgery on the spot by a master wow. surgeon who, who said that, you know, uh, we need neurosurgeons. You're going to become a neurosurgeon. That's what he told her. And he supervised her at first and afterwards uh, set her loose. And oftentimes she would, uh, she would perform about over 100 surgeries per month. That was the number of casualties that were coming into that hospital in Saigon at the time. Wow. Wow. But as I said, she was always fascinated with aviation. And so there was a service within the, the French uh, uh, military health uh, service corps that uh, was for a uh, mobile unit to be dro airdropped by, uh, by parachute into remote outposts. Now this, you have to kind of imagine this war at the time didn't have fronts. Uh, it, it, you know, you didn't have these borders separated with an enemy on one side and an enemy on the other side. The French had to be scattered all over the country in these uh, remote outposts that sometimes had from 30, maybe on up to 200 men uh, just uh, in charge of a, <clears throat> excuse me, a concrete pillbox sometimes with a perimeter often under attack all the time by uh, Vietnamese snipers and mortar shells. I mean, they, they would come in at night, uh, inflict as much damage as possible and uh, retreat in the morning in daylight so, and come back and repeat the same thing night after night. So oftentimes uh, at, at this point, um, if, there, if the wounded had to be transported, sometimes it could be transported over land by a Jeep or by um, uh, ambulance. Or sometimes it could be brought to an airstrip or a, where a fixed wing aircraft would come in. But Valerie Andre was doing something a little bit more unique. She was being airdropped uh, with medical supplies to come into some of these areas and to uh, uh, treat the uh, soldiers on the spot. And she not only just treated soldiers, she uh, treated uh, wounded civilians or civilians who had ailments too. One time she was famously, she, she was dropped in Laos in um, 1949, I think. And uh, she was airdropped in, and the people who saw her 
being dropped in, they were uh, they were uh, kind of a, um, a, a, a ethnic minority called the Mayo people in uh, Laos. They saw her dropped in, and they referred to her as the woman who came from the sky. They were just uh, in awe of this woman who, who floated in by parachute. And she not only treated, treated French soldiers at this outpost in a place called Mong Nyat, she also treated uh, the uh, native uh, Laotians, uh, the Mayo people. She even performed dental extractions for these people when they needed to have their teeth pulled. Oh my god! And gosh. so, uh, it's it just incredible. And when she, uh, and uh, I think that was really where the, the beginning of her legend started. That was where her legend started in uh, in uh, Laos, because she was she just had this incredible incredible tenacity. I think that's the thing that you uh, the one word if you want to sum it up with Valerie Andre, as I say, she's still with us today at one hundred one and a half. Uh, she just uh, uh, celebrated her um, her one hundred first birthday on April twenty first this year. I got I had a chance to go be there with her on her birthday uh, oh, this incredible. past April. She just is an incredibly tenacious woman. That's, I think, the wooden word that sums her up best. It's just tenacious. That's awesome. Started out as a doctor, coming in, turned into a neurosurgeon, then parachute qualified to jump out of planes and parachute into these small little areas where all the other French soldiers are to treat them, to yeah, then on to awesome. helicopter rescue. Are you kidding me? All in oh, like yeah. And in, in the 19... In an incredibly tiny package. She only, she's only five foot two at best, 100 pounds. She's an incredibly, you know, she's just a, this petite powerhouse. What? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Unreal. Unreal. I, absolutely. Okay, so, well, yeah, keep going. I'm, I'm in thrills. No, if you have questions, go ahead. Ask I, no, I, I don't. I just... I'm, I'm excited. <laughs> okay. So flash forward a couple years later, 1950. And uh, one of the first helicopters comes to Vietnam as a demonstration uh, rig. Uh, it's built by a, a little company in Palo Alto, California called Hiller. It's founded by a man named Stanley Hiller who flew his first helicopter when he was 19 years old at the University of California at Berkeley. And, but uh he, he, he was tenacious too. He had, uh, and, and he persevered and eventually, he started building his first prototype in 1944 and uh, went into production with his first aircraft in 1948. And it was known as the UH-12, the Hiller UH-12 360. And it was a very, if anything, if you're familiar with the Bell 47, it's in the same uh, a category as the as the Bell 47. In fact, I think there's a little bit of cross germination between the two aircraft, because Arthur Young, who was the uh, the developer of the Bell 47, came to visit Hiller uh, during uh, the uh, design process that led to the UH-12 360. And I think there is a quite a bit of um, uh, advice that came from Arthur Young, because if you look at the uh, rotor control system on the Hiller, it's very similar to the rotor control system on the Bell 47. In fact, if you have radio control helicopters, they always refer to that as the Bell Hiller mixing system. You know, Bell, the, the Bell had uh, a Bell bar uh, for controlling a uh, rotor tilt. The Hiller had uh, kind of short aileron paddles that they called rotormatic to control the, the main rotor tilt. So there's wow. 
quite a bit of similarity. And I think that has a lot to do with Arthur Young paying a visit to the uh, Hiller people around 1947. But anyway, I'm wow. getting off the topic a little bit. This helicopter came to, to Vietnam, to Saigon in 1950, and uh, it, was, it was put through a demonstration as this possible uh, device that could be used for, med uh, for uh, medical rescue. Prior to this, the, the French uh, were using uh, fixed-wing aircraft uh, to uh, rescue uh, soldiers. They would fly into, a, uh, into an airstrip. Uh, a soldier would probably be driven out by jeep or by ambulance to meet this aircraft, and they'd be stuffed in the back of an aircraft, sometimes as small as a uh, single-seater uh, Saulnier, Morin, uh, Cricket was one of the common aircraft that they used. Sometimes they used bigger aircraft like surplus DC-3s, uh, C-47s that were uh, sometimes brought in too. But it, as I said, it had limited, you know, it was limited because uh, you had to still drive a, maybe a, a really severely wounded soldier over terrible, terrible non-existent roads. Uh, the ride itself would oftentimes sometimes kill a soldier, just transporting a soldier uh, to uh, an aircraft. So the idea of getting a helicopter that could actually fly into these really remote outposts was a major, major idea, you know, a big breakthrough in the idea of rescuing and saving more lives. And I think that uh, what happened was that um, uh, the French were very, you know, really interested in this idea. And you can guess who was there to witness this demonstration in <laughs> 1950, it was Valerie Andre. Of course she was. She <laughs> she was front and center to see this new aircraft. And I don't think anybody had seen a helicopter, a successful helicopter flight before. And it was brought to Saigon, of all places, for a demonstration. And uh, she just fell in love with the idea that she could become a, a helicopter pilot, take her skills as a medical doctor, a surgeon, bring them to uh, the battlefield, treat, stabilize a soldier, bring them back and have them treated and saved. It was unheard of uh, prior to that time. I mean, you know, again, as I said, fixed wing aircraft were in service, but they had limitations. The helicopter would change the entire uh, complexity of everything by facilitating, you know, a more efficient and hopefully more successful rescue. Yeah. So she lobbied very hard to join the service. And you have to kind of consider the French military was not exactly open to the idea of women doing this kind of thing in 1940 or 1950 by this time. I mean, she had resistance all the way along as being just a doctor serving in Vietnam and doctors were in short supply. There was a lot of prejudice, a lot of chauvinism involving, uh, you know, the idea of a woman who was equal in to a man. I mean, she was commissioned as a captain, but oftentimes, uh, uh, male soldiers of the same rank wouldn't respect her rank. Uh, and I write about that in my book quite extensively, that she was often the subject of uh, chauvinism, prejudice uh, by her fellow officers. And uh, she had overcome that every step of the way. Jeez, oh man. And just kept moving forward. She had to drive. Oh yeah. She was not going to yeah, quit. Yeah, she did. Absolutely. <laughs> so, she lobbied hard to become a uh, helicopter pilot. And uh, at first there was a lot of reluctance, as I said, because she was a woman, but also because her skill as a neuro, as a surgeon was uh, also needed as well. And uh, and she, while she was in training, she would perform both. She would take practice flights. Uh, she actually went back to France to learn how to become a pilot. There was a Hilla distributor who um, 
uh, uh, was based in Paris at the time. And she took flight training lessons then. Back at that time, I think it was 20 hours to become certified as a, as a helicopter pilot. I think she was the second woman in France to be certified. There was a civilian who uh, got uh, who received training prior to her, but she was the first mili uh, female military pilot in France, uh, helicopter pilot, I should oh, say. Because so I cool. think there, were, there was another woman who uh, was certified as fixed wing prior to her during the Second World War, but she was the first female military helicopter pilot for France, and so. She came back and she was lucky because the first uh, man to be certified as a um, military rescue pilot for helicopters was Alexis Santini. And Alexis Santini was a very pragmatic man. He was from Corsica and he had served in the, the French Air Force since 1939. But uh, he was a, he, he became a, 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 um, a convert immediately to the idea of the helicopter because prior to that he was one of these fixed wing pilots that were, that were uh, rescuing soldiers uh, prior to the helicopter being put into, into service. But um, Alexis Santini was really crucial for her to become a pilot because it was up to him whether he would accept her or reject her. And he met her, uh, actually met her briefly in Paris while she was under undergoing her training. And he was impressed by her. He could see that uh, she had ability. She had this uh, drive to uh, for perfection. She wouldn't accept anything less for herself. And he was not, you know, immediately sold because he said, you know, you have to go through your training. And she did for several months before she was actually uh, allowed to go on solo missions. Uh, first couple of missions, he went with uh, she went with uh, Alexi Santini to uh, perform some rescue missions. And uh, uh, oh, everything was improvised all along the way. I, I think from my research also that I found that the French initiated their rescue service with helicopters in Vietnam several months before the Americans even initiated theirs in Korea. Those wow. were the concurrent wars at the time. The French were involved in Vietnam. The Americans were involved in Korea. and. Uh, the Americans became really well known for uh, helicopter rescue as well in Korea during that conflict. But the French were doing this couple, several months before the Americans uh, got their first, first Bell 47s. And so <laughs> everything was improvised all along the way. Uh, these helicopters the rules were as you very go. temperamental. Beautiful. Pardon? You're writing the oh, rules yeah. as you go. Like, oh, oh I, they did. You know what? Let's not even, do that next time. <laughs> oh no, they 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 learned about even things like pilot rescue. When a pilot was downed, on one uh, on in one occasion, there was a French Air Force pilot that was that developed air air engine trouble. He, had, he was flying a Grumman Bearcat, and what happened was he had to ditch his airplane and bail out. And he was behind enemy lines. He was in the Mekong Delta area, but uh, they knew approximately where his aircraft went down. He was, you know, they, his uh, his uh, other squadron uh, members actually, you know, saw him come down. They, they knew where he was, but he had to, he had to survive for a day or so uh, just in the, in the, in the marshlands and the swamps in the Mekong Delta. So a helicopter was eventually brought in to, to bring him out of there. And uh, it was the first time a helicopter rescue of a downed pilot uh, had occurred with the, uh, French Air Force. Uh, and so 
uh, afterwards, they had to start, try to perfect ideas of how to even do that. And Valerie Andre actually volunteered for some of that. Uh, they oh were doing gosh. things with uh, cable winches, you know, uh, that would attach to a parachute harness. And uh, they, they dangled her from a helicopter to see if they could rescue other pilots that would be in a similar situation as the one they had just rescued. And so she volunteered to, to be dangled from a helicopter to practice uh, pilot rescue. Oh, my God. That's just how gutsy she is. And she was at the time. Jeez. Oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> I know. Incredible. It is incredible. So eventually she was turned loose. Can you, can she was, she performed solo rescue missions. Okay. And every single one of them was different. Every time you went into one of these uh, situations, uh, sometimes she would be accompanied by fighter uh, fighter airplanes, uh, fighter, they were, they were fixed wing Grumman's that would come in and uh, sometimes have to they would come into these remote outposts and you have to kind of imagine they had a perimeter around them and then they would have uh, snipers, Vietnam snipers, Vietnam mortar shells would come in. And so they would send fighter pilots in first to sometimes strafe the area and if need be, they even dropped napalm. So they would spread the um, the enemy Viet Minh away from the uh, outpost so she, the helicopter could come in for a landing. The helicopter would come in for a very excruciatingly slow landing always exposed to <laughs> uh, any kind of enemy fire yeah and so she would come in sometimes they would they would have no more than usually five minutes to uh you know see how a patient was stabilize them load them onto a litter and then take off back to one of the uh one of the main military hospitals either in saigon or in hanoi wow. she was actually stationed in both parts of the country both north and south vietnam now, I, one of the things about this helicopter in particular was, that I found fascinating was it's not a it's a very tiny helicopter. I mean, heck, one of the first ones that they had. So they they literally created a cocoon like rescue pod on either side of the outside of the helicopter. So she would get yes. out. She get the victim, put him in the or the wounded soldier in this capsule, button him up and then say, OK. And then take off, and they're they're literally riding on the outside of the air in this capsule all the way back to where yes. they're going before they ever get to see medical attention again. No, oh that's absolutely gosh. true. And she's the one oh, that's going to land, get out, and make sure you're okay. Oh, I got to give you a little more fluid. Oh, I got to do this. Oh my gosh. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, it, it even got hairier than that. Uh, there was a couple instances. One instance in particular I write about. That's at the very beginning of my book. I write about this instance where she's taking back a uh, soldier who's suffered a, a head trauma. He's been shot in the head. And uh, she was she wanted to, uh, to make sure that he was totally sedated before she loaded him onto one of these litters on the side of the helicopter. And uh, she was stitched and the, this medic uh, on the scene said, yeah, sure, sure. He's been he's been sedated. Don't worry about it. Well, it turned out that when he was strapped into this helicopter, he uh, revived partway back uh, to this hospital in Hanoi and started to panic and um it, you know they look the way they loaded these these guys into these helicopters the the upper part of the body would be located not too far from the uh from the the foot controls for the for the um, tail rotor you know the yaw controls and so uh he was he, he uh he woke up he started to, to uh panic 
uh, being, you know, flown uh, back to this hospital. And he didn't know where he was. And he just started to panic and started grabbing for the all controls on, on the helicopter, the, uh, the tail rotor controls for it. And, and you know, both almost killed killed both of them in the process. Valerie Andre wound up having to, you know, beat him away from the controls. Fortunately, he wound up uh, falling back into a coma, which saved them both ultimately. But that was just something that, you know, could happen. And she, you know, <laughs> it almost wound up killing her right then and there. Oh my gosh. She had a couple other close calls like that too. Like I, I know you write about a couple of them, but yeah, oh, yeah. let's take one more. Just, just one more. Well, you know, sometimes these helicopters would have mechanical breakdowns in flight. Uh, she had one where the, the tail rotor transmission just uh, froze up on her. I guess it stripped out. Uh, she had to make an auto rotation landing and she was in no man's land. And um, she thought she was going to get herself killed in that uh, when that happened. Um, you know, you just never know where the enemy would be uh, for the French. They were everywhere. Like I said, there was no, there was no solid front. It was everywhere in that country, you know, at the time, uh, where you could be picked off. And so she was lucky that eventually, uh, a, some, a group of civilians came by in a bus and, uh, she got one of them to go uh, tell, um, you know, nearby outpost, you know, a French outpost to come and help her out. And, uh, she was found and she was rescued. And the helicopter had to be pushed. Uh, it had tricycle landing gear, so it could be rolled on the ground, and they pushed it eventually back to some place where it could be repaired and flown off again. But um, you know that was just another instance where she could have been killed. Uh, there was um, a, some. There was one time when she actually landed because Vietnam. If you've ever been there or know anything about it is incredibly, incredibly wet sometimes. I mean, monsoon rains come down and just flood everything. And one instance, she uh, <laughs> she landed in mud up to the belly pan of the helicopter and almost lost a helicopter at that time. You know, she was <laughs> caked all the way through her landing gear. The belly of the air aircraft was just caked in mud. Uh, uh, you know, when she she came down in an area where she shouldn't have, and <laughs> just incredible. One there was another time when she was uh, in uh, hovering in ground effects uh, at. Uh, at uh, uh, the air, air base in uh, Hanoi. And uh, all of a sudden she had a power failure. She just came down uh, from about uh, maybe 10, 15 meters and just crushed the helicopter so much so that the uh, tail boom bent into a V. She walked away from it, but uh, collapsed the uh, landing gear. Uh, <laughs> she, was never, she, she was never allowed to forget when that happened. Uh, Alexi Santini would come up sometimes and, uh, you know, when she was, uh, you know, to remind her to be careful out there. And uh, there's a story about how he came up one time and bent a matchstick into a V to remind her of that incident. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, that's, that's <laughs> terrible and kind of funny. It just goes to show, like, the, the humor just continued from then to now. <laughs> we all oh, did yeah. the same thing. It's great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> We're going to divert real quick to thank our sponsors. Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. No, and as I said, it was made up on the spot. All the, the rescue techniques, uh, 
again with mechanical failures they found out sometimes these if you shut these aircraft off they wouldn't restart they had a charging system problem on them so they were you know they were told never to shut these aircraft down when you were you know in a in a in a, in a, um, in a uh, combat zone you know picking up uh rescued uh, uh soldiers i mean uh wounded soldiers rescuing wounded soldiers um there was a couple of times where the helicopter got stranded because of that wow yeah, and I, I, you, I could totally see her landing in an area, just leaving the helicopter running, just put it at idle. I'll be like, okay, I'll be right back. Getting out, yeah. walking over, treating the patients, bringing them to the helicopter, still turning, put them in the capsule. Okay, now let's go. Turn it up, fire it up. Oh, yeah. Just back and forth, let's quick, go. It was quick turn and burn. Get the hell out of there as soon as you can because uh, you had no time to waste. You're going to be under attack again after those fighter pilots left. After those fighter planes were gone, the Viet Minh would regroup and uh, they want, didn't make any difference that that helicopter had red crosses. It did, painted on the side of it. Viet Minh did not care. They would shoot at these helicopters and if they yeah. could take one down, they would. Eventually, they took down uh, another helicopter that... Uh, was flown by one of her her friends, a guy named Henri Bartier. Uh, the big, the end battle for the French in Vietnam at Dien Bien Phu, and he wound up losing his life. Uh, no, he wound up losing his leg. Um, the soldier he was going to be taking back to a hospital in Hanoi lost his life. Wow. Yeah. Man. Unreal. Gosh, what they went through back then, man. Oh yeah, that's incredible. Yeah, very much so. Eventually, they, in Vietnam, they, they introduced more sophisticated helicopters. Uh, first, there were Westland Sikorskis, which were kind of junk. And then they went to Westland Sikorskis were built in England. And there were built there were Sikorsky helicopters built under license, a license by a company called Westlands. And uh, the French bought a bunch of those, but they weren't very good. And so eventually, I think the French bought um, Sikorsky S-51s and S-55s that they used in Vietnam for only medical rescue. The helicopter was only used for medical rescue in, by the French in Vietnam uh, from 1950 to 1954. Right on. Wow. No kidding. Man, that is cool. That is super cool. And Valerie Andre, uh, if we hadn't already mentioned it, she flew 129 missions in Vietnam, and uh, she rescued 168 men. Yeah. That's yeah. That's just mind blowing to me. That is awesome. Oh yeah, good for her. Incredible. Not scared. Incredible. Not scared to yeah. go in. Yeah. Yeah. Oh no, never. No. You know, no. She uh, she was fearless. Absolutely fearless. And that doesn't even include everybody that she may have saved their life on the surgery table when they came back from another area. Wow. No, she still performed. Uh, she she was still um. Uh, a working surgeon too. So that's what I mean. Well, we're just between. talking. Yeah. We're talking 168 guys that she saved maybe out of the field. Then there's everybody else on the operating oh, yeah. table that she saved there too. Oh, it was incredible. Every time she went to a, a, a hospital where some of these wounded men were, they just they were just in complete awe of her. They referred to her as an angel. You know, just she she was called an angel on the battlefield a lot, by a lot of men. Uh, she kind of looked at it that uh, she thought it was a great thing that a woman could do this at the time, because even more so than a man, a woman had more of a comforting appearance, you know, to a wounded soldier in a combat zone. She said yeah. that maybe uh, they would think of their mother or their, their wife or, you know, girlfriend, you know, anybody, you know, they thought that they were being taken care of by somebody 
who really cared for them, you know, and it was important for them to see a woman, you know, uh, that's how she felt. And a lot of the men who's, who benefited from her, uh, uh, from her rescues thought the same thing. Absolutely. That she was just this, um, kind of this, um, battlefield angel, if you will. Oh, so I love that. That is awesome. Man. All right. So now let me ask you this. Like, so she did, uh, let's see, it was four or five years in Vietnam during that. Uh, she went from late 47 to 1953. Okay. So and, the, and, quite a while. And, and the war lasted in Vietnam until 1954. That was, uh, as I said, the, the last big battle was this kind of um, set piece, if you uh, that was uh, uh, just uh, west of uh, Hanoi in the, in the northern part of Vietnam in a place called Dien Binh Phu. It was this giant uh, land air base that the French built to uh, bring the Viet Minh in for what they wanted to have as a big, big battle. Instead of all these little battles, these skirmishes that would take place at these remote airport air bases or these remote outposts throughout the country, they wanted to have a final all-out war with the Viet Minh in 1954, and it disastrously for the French. They were badly, badly defeated at this. Uh, they were they built an air land base in the middle of a valley where they didn't think the uh, Vietnamese would be able to bring in heavy artillery. They were absolutely wrong. The Vietnamese brought in big cannons. By this time, they were getting some supplies from China because um, they were allied to the communists in China by this time. Wow. So it was a disaster for the French and they had to give up in 1954. Got it. So now and what that's did... when the Americans inherited the war in 1955 after the Geneva Accords. Ah, okay. All right. And so now for Valerie around 1955, what did she do after that? Okay. So getting back to Valerie Andre and what she did after she left Vietnam in 1953, she uh, really wanted to go back and join her comrades back in Vietnam, but uh, her superior officers didn't really want her to do that. There was a lot of movement at that time that uh, to keep her off the battlefield because there was this prejudice that still a doctor and uh, and uh, there was a thing that um, I write about in my book that said that she was sometimes detrimental to the prestige of men. You know, that was a thing that was brought up uh, about her at that time. But she didn't want to she didn't want to stay idle for long. So she was able to get a, a position as a medical officer with a, uh, a facility for uh, testing advanced aircraft in France at the time. At the time, the French were really keen on trying to uh, uh, break the sound barrier. And so some of their um, early uh, jet aircraft were geared toward that. And they were being tested at a place uh, uh, in France, uh, Brittany. And so she uh, became the medical officer at this test uh, facility there. And she got to see a lot of uh, different things that happened in that time period, especially became uh, one thing that was noteworthy for her is that she became really good friends with a test pilot named Jacqueline Oreal, who was the first woman in France to break the sound barrier. I think that was in 1955. Nice. Very cool. But she wanted to go back in, and in 1954, the war came to an end in Vietnam. As I mentioned, uh, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu uh, finally ended it for the French. Uh, the, the Viet Minh defeated the French at Dien Bien Phu. 
And the French were forced to negotiate uh, the end of their power, the end of their colonial power in Vietnam. And so the country should have been uh, uh, united. There was supposed, there was supposed to be um, a referendum in 1955 that was uh, to vote on who was to determine the future for, for Vietnam. But uh, because of the United States being kind of involved with uh, the war against communism, Ho Chi Minh and his group uh, were not seen favorably. So the country was partitioned into two countries, North and South Vietnam, with uh, the North being communist, run by, Viet, uh, by, the, by Ho Chi Minh and his uh, group, uh, the Viet Minh, later known as the Viet Cong, and the uh, uh, South that was uh, supported by the United States. Uh, so that was the, the, the beginning of the conflict that led into the American Vietnam War. But the French were out of it for all intents and purposes by 1955. But they had other wars that they had to worry about. And one was in Algeria, North Africa. And the uh, same thing started happening as soon as the war in Vietnam wound down. Uh, there was a nationalist movement in Algeria to end colonial rule in Algeria uh, by 1955. And so by 1955, the French were again immersed in another really costly, bloody war. And uh, Valerie Andre wanted to, you know, resume work as a uh, in a combat zone. I mean, I think she just had a taste for it. Uh, she kind of, I write about this also in my book. She, there is a sort of a, an addiction and an adrenaline rush to this kind of service. You know, I think she really wanted to serve. That was part of it, but I think it really. I think it did sustain her to a quite a bit to be involved with this. I think that was something that she really sought out. Uh, she's not a fan of war. Believe me, that's one thing she says right off the bat, that she does not uh, believe war is a great solution to anything. But I think she has a de deep desire to serve, really did, in her, in her time period. So uh, Algeria was just another uh, way for her to serve back in that time period. And she, wanted, she went there in 1955. She took a, um, a, uh, a leave to basically take a vacation in Algeria and join up as an observer with a helicopter squadron there. Now in Algeria, the helicopter was not just limited to a medical role. It was used as troop transport and also as, and helicopters were used as gunships as well. And so that was the Algerian war with the French was considered the first war, the first helicopter war. It's been called the first helicopter war because of the expanded role of the helicopter back at that time. No kidding. Dang. Wow. Right. So she and, was obviously getting upgraded, being able to fly multiple different airframes. And then- Yeah, by this time, yeah, you're right. You're talking like traveling, bringing troops. And I know the US at that yes. time, they were bringing in bigger helicopters into the Vietnam War, like right off. So you eat your Hueys, your, um, yeah. Hueys for sure. Those were coming into play. Yeah, UH-1s so, by uh, 1965, yeah. or 66. Uh, so that might have been a little bit early still for, for Valley. But even still, if you're talking about bringing troops in, it's bigger helicopters for sure. It was. It was the, it was the, it was the big Sikorskys at this time that she oh, okay. uh, transitioned to. She also yeah. flew uh, uh, She also flew Sud Alouette, uh, the Alouette Two. Oh yeah, uh, that was yeah. The that was the the French built the the French built the first uh, turbine helicopter turbine helicopter in, in with the French uh, Sud Alouette Deux the Alouette Two, 
uh, was their fir their first turbine uh, helicopter. But in Algeria, she transitioned to big Sikorskis and she flew both medical rescue and troop transport. There was a there was a great story of how she was actually one time uh, uh, transporting camel feed of all things to a camel um, to a, a camel cavalry unit uh, in um, uh, Algeria, and she got stuck in the middle of a she got stuck in a uh, with a mechanical failure that she had to get rescued uh, by another helicopter squadron that had to come in. I think an engine failure happened on one of the big Sikorskis. But uh, she served both as a medical officer at, at a major air base near Algiers, and she uh, also served as a uh, pilot uh, transporting troops and rescuing people. She never and she got to see the first gunships uh, that were introduced. She never flew on a gunship or never piloted a gunship, yeah. but she saw the first gunships that the French used. Uh, they had one called the Mammoth, I think, and another one they called the Pirate. Uh, that were, became the basis for all big gunships that came after that. They mounted all sorts of uh, artillery on these aircraft. Uh, and uh, as I said, the, the role of the, air, uh, of the helicopter was greatly expanded in Algeria at that time. Dang. And she, she also she was there when, to promote through all this too, right? Like, yeah, uh, she became uh, France's first uh, female colonel in 1965, that was a major wow. achievement. When she became, she was promoted to the rank of colonel in 1965. Uh, she, uh, after Algeria wound down in 1962, uh, France, France had eventually cut loose uh, uh, Algeria as a colony of France and let Algeria have self-determination, which was the right thing to do. The uh, De Gaulle handled that much better than the French uh, president at the time in 1954, 55 handled the Algerian or uh, the Vietnamese. Indochina war, the Algerian war would have been really costly and bloody for the French and de Gaulle cut his losses and just said, let's continue with economic ties to Algeria, but uh, no more uh, French interference with their government and self-determination. It was a right idea that, you know, even though it was highly, highly controversial, de Gaulle was nearly assassinated by his own military back in the early 1960s because of his, you know, his reversal and uh, on uh, how he was going to handle Algeria. But that's getting into French history. Let's get into Valerie Andre's history. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, she, came, she came back to, to uh, France after that and was assigned to uh, air bases as, a, as, again, a medical officer. But she continued to, um, uh, she, she did another, uh, it, it, this time she became aware that there was quite a bit of, um, of inequity between the sexes in the French Medical uh, Service Corps, the Service de Santé, she, uh, she, you know, there was predominantly male, even in, in going into the 1960s, even though there were lots and lots of really well-qualified female candidates uh, for medical positions in the, the French military uh, medical corps. So she started to say that that was unfair. You know, it's not just, uh, you, you know, uh, she, she thought that it should be the best qualified person male or female that should be allowed into into the service uh and she started to try to change that uh very fundamentally by uh first going through the the french legislature uh to she had she had an ally there to help bring in uh you know to write legislation that helped bring in more women qualified women who would you know exceed the uh some of the ent entrance exam scores of their male of male counterparts to the core 
and uh, that was that was became a kind of a, a, a well, it was it was a crusade for her during the nineteen sixties and into the seventies. Wow. And uh, she, and then eventually uh, she, uh, you know, she was a thorn in the side to a, to a lot of the powers that be in the French military, you know. <laughs> but what she was, she wasn't. She never considered herself a feminist. That was very, very, very apparent, you know, in what she says about herself. She's not a feminist. She was just, you know, she was just in favor of equal rights for equal ability. That was, I think, the main message you could get from her uh, attempts to bring more women into the metal, uh, the, uh, the medical corps for the French military. And now today, when you look at the numbers today in the, in the medical corps, it's roughly 50-50, 50% women, 50% men in uh, the service de santé uh, in France. And that's really a big, big bit of that goes to Valerie Andre's efforts in the 60s and 1970s. That's fantastic. I, I am, I'm all about it. If you can do the job, if, if the minimums weren't good enough, they wouldn't be the minimum. Pass the minimum. Correct. If you can do the job, I don't care your gender. I don't care your age. I don't care your ethnicity. If you can do the job, come on, come with me. That's it. That's all there is to it. If you can do the job, you should be able to do it. If exactly. there's a demand for that job, if there's a need for that job, all the better. And that's yep. what I think she believed in. I mean, I know she believed in that. It wasn't a feminist thing. It wasn't anything. Uh, it was just fair, fair treatment. You're all human beings, you know, race, uh, uh, color, gender, all human beings. You know, it all comes down to what you can, you're able to do and how you're able to contribute uh, to that ultimate success. And that's what I think she believed in. I know that's for a fact that she believed in that. That's awesome. So what? going yeah. forward again with her, going into the 1970s, uh, in 1975, she was uh, promoted to the rank of Brigadier General in the French Army, the first woman to achieve the rank of General at that time. And it was a big achievement for her. At the time, there, in the world, there was just a handful of women who achieved that in other countries. Uh, in France, like I said, she had to overcome decades and decades of chauvinism, of prejudice, of uh, someone who, uh, you know, just kept pushing the envelope further and further, you know, and, and proving her ability at the same time. This was not just something because she was a woman. She proved her ability time and time again. And that's what she did uh, in, uh, you know, and uh, she continued on. And by this time, she was also um, a medical inspector on, uh, on uh, different zones of the, uh, in different uh, regions of uh, air bases in France itself. In fact, uh, she was even loaned an Alouette to fly from base to base to, um, you know, to be an inspector at that time. She had. I her love own how you just said Alouette. she was loaned an Alouette. Oh yeah, hey, just you can just loaned an Alouette. It. Go ahead. <laughs> well, no, no, it it, it, it was. <laughs> she thought that was incredible that she got to, you know, that she uh, she was based in Ville which is just outside of Paris, and uh, she would commute from Paris. Eventually, to a suburb of Paris, uh, uh, Molyneux, where she lived since the late 1960s. That's where I got to visit her many times when I got to see her for over the years. And ah, uh, uh, and then we get to 1981. She got, uh, she got, uh, she received the ultimate promotion. She was she was promoted to full general, uh, 
medical general inspector. Uh, uh, that was her full title, MGI, uh, Doctor General Inspector is how it, tr it translates from French into English. And uh, that's a full general in the medical corps, at least. And uh, she made uh, full general in 1981 and retired in 1982. Oh, good for her. My gosh. And just always remained active after that, too. Uh, she married uh, Alexis Santini, too. I mentioned him earlier on. Uh, I was, was actually going to ask that. It, so we went, yes. let, let me ask that question because I'm I'm really curious. We She's had an incredible military career from really age 17, you said, until yeah. like 1980, would you say 82? 82 is when she retired. Amazing. That's incredible. Yes. Now, in that oh, yeah. time, she married children. Do was that any at all? No, she doesn't have children of her own. But Alexi Santini has a son uh, who's alive today too, and uh, he was born in 1940. Uh, but his mother died short. Uh, but uh, his wife died shortly after his son was born. So uh, his uh, son was raised in Corsica by uh, Santini's um, relatives. His uh, mother and father, I think, raised. Uh, um, Santini's son while Santini ser served in the, the French Air Force and then uh, in not just uh, in France during World War II but also uh, during Vietnam but Valerie never had children of her own but uh, she regarded uh, Alexis Santini's son they got Alexis Santini and Valerie Andre got married in 1963 wow uh, Alexis Santini re re retired I think in 1960. I think he retired in 1963 uh, from the French. He was a little bit older than Valerie at the time. And uh, they eventually lived in Issy la Malignieux. It's a suburb of Paris. And uh, he died, I think, in 1997. Okay, nice. Well, I'm, I'm glad that worked out for her as well. I mean, yeah, you got all this combat time in both the Vietnam conflict with France and then down in Al Algeria, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Both of them nice. served in, uh, in Indochina and Algeria. Uh, Santini served in Algeria as well. Wow. And so, also became, uh, but he also, but Santini, uh, his claim to fame was that he became the uh, commander of uh, France's first mil uh, helicopter flight training school for military personnel. So that he was the founder of, of that. So that was his claim to fame. And it's, that's a major distinction as well. You know, that, uh, and he commanded that, I think, until 1963. I think he retired either in 63 or 64. You know, I'd have to go back and read my book. I'm just going from memory for this one. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. That's oh, absolutely. He retired at the rank of colonel. Wow. Sometimes he would be asked after if uh, he felt the, the, any jealousy because she was a general and he, and he retired at the rank of colonel. And he said, no, I'm all for my wife being able to do whatever she could do. You know, well, more power to us basically when he told told people when they asked him that. Absolutely. I never had a chance huh. to meet him, though. Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to meet him. I met Valerie Andre probably about five or six years after he died. Ah, uh, got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. That's okay. My gosh. Charles, this has been amazing. Like, um, totally uh, bowled over by that. Yeah, this is, this is awesome. I mean, just to, the, her entire story She's 101, still alive today, as yes. of this recording. And yes. she's done all that and then some. My yes. gosh. 
No, you as I say, the one word that sums her up is tenacity. She's a very tenacious lady. She just hangs in there all the way through and does the job. That's what <laughs> she's known for is just accomplishing what she sets out to do. That's, that's, I love it. I absolutely love it. Charles, I, I cannot thank you enough for just bringing this all, the entire history about her to, to all of our audience. This is, this is awesome. Yeah. Well, I hope that I, your audience, you know, seeks out this book. I'm, uh, you know, it's a really good story. It's really inspirational. I think it, uh, it shows what, you know, what you can set your mind to doing, you know, there's no limitations to it. You know, she was inspired early on by um, a female aviator who, you know, she said to herself, well, you know, if a woman can do what this woman did, you know, Maurice Hilt flew from Paris to Saigon, Vietnam in 1932, you know, incredible, you know, you, you have to go back to that time period. It's almost 100 years ago now, 90, uh, almost, okay, 90 years ago. Yeah. You know, aircraft just didn't do what they do today. You had to have a lot of physical endurance to fly some of these primitive aircraft. I mean, the Heller, the Heller itself, cyclic control is not hydraulic like you would, you're, you, you know, that <laughs> aircraft are today. It, it was above your head. The cyclic control was a stick that came off a swash plate controlling, you know, the rotor tilt. And you had to head, have your hand basically above your head throughout the entire flight, controlling that thing manually, using your own strength to pull the rotor, you know, in whatever direction you wanted to fly. There's no hydraulic controls in early Hillers at all. I don't think any of the Hillers had hydraulic controls at all. Uh, not the UH-12 at least. And oh so, my gosh. You know, you had to be a different kind of person back in the, in, in the early days of helicopter, uh, you know, in the early days of helicopters, you just had to be physically really in there to keep up with that, you know, that, that bulky machine. I lived with those air aircraft for five years. I was curator of the Hiller Museum for five years. I would look at, at them up close and wonder how anybody flew those things back in the time period. You know, it, it just blew me away. That's awesome. That's so cool. That's I heard so all cool. the stories too. I One of these days I, I got to get out. I would love to see that museum and walk through and then- If you come out this way, yeah. let me know. We'll, we'll go. Okay. I'll, I'll oh, I'd love to. Sometime. That'd be so yeah. cool. I've, yeah. Yeah, no, I'm pretty good. I think I still remember most of it. Okay. It's been yeah, it's been over 20, it's been 30 years, I think, since I left it. Almost 30 years. Yeah. But I, I, I was going to San Francisco State at the time, working on my master's degree in in history. I was in my 20s. And uh, you know, the I, I found out about this of all things from a, a friend of mine, a mechanic who used to restore Morris Miners. You probably don't even know what a Morris Miner is, but it's a little I don't. it's an equivalent of a Volkswagen built in England during the 1950s and 60s, and he was a fanatic on Morris Miners. So I used to go to his shop all the time. He lived basically across the street from where I lived. And one day I was in there, and he was, and he told, and he had this model of a helicopter about two feet long, and uh, he said, "I'm going to be building a replica, a full-scale replica of this helicopter for a museum in Redwood City. That's where I lived. That's where the museum used to be." And I said, "There's no museums in Redwood City." And he says. Oh no! There's this one built by the, that the, it belongs to a guy named Stanley Hiller. He has, uh, you know, dozens of helicopters and fixed wing stuff. And his, and he gave me the address where it was, you know, in Redwood City. And I, you know, walked by. And you, you know, the only thing that tipped me off that there might be something in the, inside there. It was just a nondescript warehouse. You couldn't tell anything was going on there. They could have been just, you know, cutting dope in there. They could have been. It could have been a meth lab for all I knew. 
back then. Well, maybe not in the 1990s, on, but anyway, you go there and it was a window. One window had a kind of a, a genesis of all helicopters going back to the 1940s up into the 1990s, I guess. You know, it was a poster of just, you know, various helicopters built by different manufacturers around the world. That was the only tip off that there might be something inside there. It was just in a window. There was no name on the outside said Hiller Aircraft Museum, nothing. So um, I wrote to Hiller. That's basically what I did. I was thinking about volunteering, by, you know, and getting class credit from San Francisco State to volunteer at the uh, Maritime Museum in San Francisco, which is a great museum too. But, you know, I was in San Francisco. I lived in Redwood City and they wouldn't pay me, you know. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it, it, I, I thought it'd be nice to get a job. You know, doing volunteer work is great and getting class credit would have been fine. But I kind of thought maybe I'd get a job out of this. And so I did. I went, wrote to Hiller and uh, I apparently impressed him enough that he, he, you know, by letter that he asked me to come up to his office. And I did. I got to meet him for the first time. And, and uh, he needed a curator. He needed somebody basically uh, to show the museum to people whenever, you know, it was only open by appointment, uh, no regular hours ever while I worked there at least. And uh, so that's what I did uh, for five years uh, while I worked, uh, you know, I, it didn't take me five years to finish my master's degree, but, you know, a couple of years working on my master's degree. And then after a couple of years after that, I worked for him for about five or six years until I moved to Reno, Nevada after that. Well, if I get out there, so, I'm, I'm calling you. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I, I, I definitely, I want you to keep in contact. Okay. It'll be great. Oh, it'd be so okay. much fun. Yeah, heck yeah. Absolutely. Great. Just let me know. No. I, I can... I'll work it. I'll make it work. All right. All right. I like if you're the idea. Want to go to France. Hey, if you ever want to go to France, let me know that too, because uh, I, I know the okay, museum. Okay. All right. Are... Twist my arm. Twist my arm. Okay. Okay. I'm coming. Well, you're not too far from it. You're closer than, I think you're Saudi Arabia. You're closer to France right now than I am. Yes, I am. And it's a direct flight. Well, there you yes. go. Yeah. <laughs> well, then definitely keep, keep in contact. If you ever okay. want to go, I'll, I'm all for it. I'll be going I'm back. In. Oh, that'd be I, a blast. Okay. And if I could get you, and if we get Valerie Andre to hang on, uh, you know, till April, you know, I'm planning to go back to see her again in April if I can. I hope. Okay. I keep okay. in contact with her. I keep in contact with her stepson all the time and other people who know her. We so um, she's, you know, at 101 and a half, she's doing all right, but you know, she sleeps a lot during the day, you know, and it's she's had a she's had a long life and a very hard one sometimes too. So. She's getting a rest now, and I'm glad for that too. I just hope she's happy. That's the only thing I hope for. Oh, she has a lot of friends who come to see her, and they, and they support good. her, and they and, good. and they watch out for her too. Good, good. Hundred one. She yeah, deserves the last a lot of friends to see her. come see her. <laughs> they do. I mean, you know, uh, there's what they call a small circle, uh, and they tell me I'm part of the of a small circle that gets to go see her. I remember I got to go there on uh, the 21st for her birthday. And uh, they had, you know, uh, you know, kind of a low-key party. Uh, she's staying at a rest home. She's in a retirement home, not too far from where she used to live in her own apartment. But during COVID, you know, she started to get more fragile. And they got worried about her. And they put her in a very nice retirement home. She has her own room, you know, a private room, uh, you know, a sitting room and a bedroom. So, you know, it's, it's kind of a fancy setup that they have for her because they really regard her as something special. And so I got to go there on the 21st for her uh, 101st birthday. I also did a book presentation at the city hall that night because her nephew is the mayor of E.C. La Molyneux. He's been the mayor for the last 40 years, I think. He's 
Wow. He's a he's a hardcore politician. He's also been part of the U uh, the uh, French Assembly. Just suffice to say, he's a big shot. Okay. And so I got to present my book along with another writer who wrote up, you know, uh, another book about, uh, she also wrote, a, a good friend of mine, her name is Martine Gay, wrote a book about Alexis Santini and um, Valerie Andre, but more of their private life after they're, you know, involved in, in, in war, you know, in, in the different conflicts, uh, Indochina and Algeria. But I went back a couple of weeks later because I was in France for three weeks and I went back a couple of weeks later and I went to the to the retirement home and uh, they let me, you know, visit Valerie Andre. We just sat and watched television for three hours. That's all we did. That's perfect. You know, she wanted to watch. She, she had uh, a French game show on called Affaire Conclu, which is some <laughs> sort of goofy thing where they, um, you know, people bring their crazy stuff in and people bid to buy it after okay it's it's a dumb show to pass your time with i wish he was watching something more interesting like maybe aviation history or something like that but i just sat there and i just spent time with her that's all she wanted to do and i spent time with her until it was dinner time for her and i had to go they, oh, they made me leave that's, that's perfect it's perfect a great yeah, i just like the idea it was a great time to spend my day you know that's all i wanted to do is just spend a nice quiet time with her and i got to do that with her Perfect. Well done, sir. Well done. Well, That's good. Thank you. So out what? of curiosity. This was fun. Yeah. Oh, I had a blast. But I do I, no, I have a question for you, right? So I'm out ready. of curiosity, are you doing any more books? Do you have any more uh, book history things you're going to be writing? Well, you know, I have this thing that I cut out of my book, actually. Uh, quite a significant part of it, my book was about a father and son. Uh, a general named uh, Jean de Latre de Tassigny and his son, uh, Bernard uh, de, de Latre de Tassigny. And what was interesting about these, the, this family, uh, de Latre family, was that I think I, I made the kind of a, I, I'll make a call, a, kind of a tall claim here. I think de Latre, he was the um, uh, commander in chief of the French armed forces in Vietnam in 1951. And in 1950, the French almost lost the northern part of Vietnam to the Viet Minh. Uh, by 1950, the Viet Minh, Ho Chi Minh's uh, group, was getting a lot of support from the, the communist Chinese that took over in 1949. And Delacha was called in in 1951 to uh, try to reverse the situation. The French, as I said, were almost wiped out in 1950. And Delacha was brought in. His son was already uh, fighting in Vietnam with the French in a mobile group. And Delatra was called in to reorganize the French force and give them more confidence to fight against the Viet Minh, because he just up to that time had really terrible commanders in, in, in charge of the war there. And so Delatra did that. He came in and he also started to get uh, lobby for more assistance from the United States in, in terms of uh, uh, foreign aid and military equipment that was being sent to Vietnam by the, by the U.S. A lot of it was uh, surplus from World War II. But uh, I found Galatra a kind of an interesting character. Uh, it, it would take me a lot longer to explain it, uh, and I don't want to get into his story right now. All but right. he might have been the only French commander that could have saved the situation of the French in Vietnam and maybe brought a negotiated peace with the Viet Minh. Because in the early part of 1951, he uh, took on the Viet Minh. Uh, the Vietnamese general Vo Nguyen Giap was the... Uh, uh, he became the thorn, the thorn in the side for the French, but also the thorn in the side for the U.S. during the 1960s, too. Uh, threw his best men against uh, the French and 
with because of Delatra, they had uh, reorganized to, uh, to into a better fighting force. Delatra could, and it was only the Delatra was the only um, general that the uh, Vietnamese respected. They knew his reputation from World War II, which would be another story to get into. But uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, which had to do a lot with uh, his his son being killed in action in, in May of 1951, and Delatra um, coming, uh, uh, Delatra becoming uh, having cancer in the latter part of that year and dying in early 1952, they lost probably their best their best opportunity to maybe have a negotiated peace with Vietnam. I, I think it might it, that might be just like a like a fairy tale, you know, kind of thing, an alternative reality, if you will, where the French could have, uh, you know, said that uh, we'll pull out of um, Vietnam and let the Vietnamese run Vietnam, but you know, still have economic ties to, ties to Vietnam. Uh, you know, Vietnam was really yeah. important for things like rubber uh, plantations and rubber production. So Michelin Tire from. Uh, from France, you know, definitely had an economic interest in Vietnam, you could say. Yep. But, you know, uh, and, and like I said, uh, this general, Delatro, was probably the only French general that they ever had in Vietnam during that time period that could have maybe brought an end to the war. And if they had done that, they might have changed history altogether. You might not have ever had the involvement of the United States in Vietnam, like uh, happened in the 1960s. It might avert that tragedy altogether, saving, you know, countless, countless lives. I mean, sometimes I think the estimate of how many Vietnamese casualties during the American War was well over two million people. You know, the yes. Americans lost 58,000 lives uh, in yeah. uh, Vietnam and, you know, hundreds of thousands wounded during that time period. And if Delatra had been able to show the French had some teeth and was able to stand up against the, Vietnam the Vietnamese, they might have been able to negotiate a peace. You know, not a perfect peace, but France would have pulled out out of the politics of Vietnam, but they have, you know, continued economic interest, you know, supporting things like the rubber plantations, as I mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And it might have ended things a little bit differently if he had lived, but he didn't. He was, his son was killed in combat and he died six months after that from cancer. Wow. So no, no, how history would have played out differently, possibly. It's just one of those things you think about. Think about the alternate reality. I like it. I alternate like it reality is what it is. A lot yeah. of people do that with what if. these days. Think, yeah. What if? What yeah. if? Yeah. Well, Charles, I, I really can't thank you enough for coming on. And and if you uh, if you wanted my opinion, which I know my opinion doesn't really matter, but I give you an A plus on the book. So well done. Good book report. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Love it. Thank you. Uh, this has been such a treat for me. I, I love the history side of stuff. This is, it's, I get to hear so much from right now and guys and girls that have done the job recently and it's literally their story. But to get somebody like you that's come on to do all the research. Well, her st story starts in 1922. So from 1922 on. Yeah. To now. 1920, uh, 1921. That, that's so, when she was born, 1920. And all the way to now, and everything in between and everything she's done, you've done an incredible job with all that. And I'm I'm excited to get your book. Maybe maybe I can get a signed copy. Just throwing that out there. Maybe I can I can arrange that for you. Oh just let me know man. where to send it. I'll send you a copy. I'll send you a copy, sure. Why not? Oh, thanks. 
No, you're oh, a great guy. I'm, I'm enjoying this 100. percent Yeah, thank you. I really, really, I really do thank you for coming on. This is, I mean, I I love the fact that we can uh, keep her memory alive and with everything that she's done from all this time, really writing the way oh. that we do helicopter operations and rescue today. It's beautiful. I love it. Absolutely well, yeah, she's it. the pioneer. Her yeah. and Alexis Santini are both the pioneers of this for France, at least. And you're going way back to the beginnings of where you're you're concentrating on helicopter rescue. This is where it starts. And, you know, there's a lot to be learned from these pioneers because as we talked about, they made it up as they went along. Freaking amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Well, thank you for all the research you put into this and really just dropping some knowledge on us today. This has been amazing. So all thank right. you. Oh, you're more than welcome, for sure. We, you and I will be in touch. And if we can make France happen, if I can get out to the museum, I will absolutely do that. And, uh, and we'll, okay. we'll, kick, we'll kick back a beer and, and tell more stories. I like this. Oh, I'd love that, for sure. I'm all, awesome. all for it. All right, right on. Well, thank you okay. again. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Now, it's time for me to pull chocks and take off. But before I go, I'm always looking for the memorable rescues that people have done. If you have one that you're willing to share or know somebody who has a story, please feel free to reach out to me. I'd love to highlight it here at The Real Rescue. For everybody that is standing by for that SAR alarm, remember, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. So until next time, fly safe and swim hard. Thank you for joining me today here at the Real Rescue Podcast, powered by Vertical Helicast. We'd also like to say thank you to our sponsors for this episode, Breeze Eastern. They dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. Hey, rule number seven. Don't offer food, it will be taken. I got to give some credit to my man Lenny Cunningham for this one. He would say it all the time, and he was a big reason this rule got put into play. Anytime we were working together, if I cooked up some lunch or dinner, and he walked in the door, I'd be like, hey, bro, you hungry? You want some food? The first thing he would do is look at me and be like, bro, rule number seven. So thanks, Lenny, for this one. But it goes so much further than just Lenny. I specifically remember landing at airports and you walk in and the receptionist would be like, hey, we've got fresh cookies made. Help yourself. Um, yes, please. Or when you're on deployment and you land at another somewhat crazy airport and they've got boatload of candy bars all over the place. Help yourself. Okay, let me fill my helmet bag. Anytime I went offshore and landed on an oil rig and they were like, hey, you guys want some box lunches or some snacks? Absolutely. Load it up. And how about this one? From time to time, you drop into the hospital, cruise into the break room, and what do they have? A spread of food. What do they say? Oh, you guys hungry? Help yourself. Yeah. Load the plate up. Let's do it. Full meal. Love it. 
And that is why we have rule number seven.